You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. A relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Okay, um, we're sticking with our series. Um, Also, welcome, welcome. I should start there. You're going to notice this is not my usual... um, God, words. Production quality, um, because I'm not going to go back and edit any of this. I'm just trying to get it out as quickly as possible because there's a genocide happening and um, we need to talk about it. So um, if you're new to the podcast, <laughs> this is likely not what you are here to listen to, um, but I would ask that you listen to it anyway, because um, there's a lot of misinformation going around and... Um, Yeah. Anyway, I have part one, the previous episode, episode 39 is part one of this. This is episode 40 and it's part two. I'm recording the audio for this on October 17th. And um, it's likely that by the time I post this, um, a lot of more people will have died. So, yeah. Um, I... I will not, like I said, I'm going to trip over my words. It's not going to be clean. Um, and uh, what I'm going to be doing is sharing the um, voices of folks who know way more about this than I do. I'm getting a lot of information from posts on both TikTok and Instagram in terms of Palestinians sharing their experience. Um, we are going to hear from Jewish folks. We're going to hear from um, people in the news. Um, and a whole lot of the diaspora of Palestinians who are sharing their thoughts and their experiences about this as well. Um, in addition to just other accounts who focus on social, so, 
social justice work and whose opinion I value very, very highly. So um, all of these are going to be numbered. If they are videos, they're going to be numbered with a number. If they are um, posts that are just text that I'm going to be reading, uh, they're going to be numbered with a letter. And all of those numbers and letters are going to be in a spreadsheet. I will link in the description so you can go if you want to go actually watch the videos or look up those news links or whatever. That's where you can find all the links for them. Um, I'm also doing something unusual here. All of my podcast episodes are normally go up on YouTube anyway, but it's just a slide of my logo with my voice over it. In this case, the video that I'm going to be posting for this episode is actually the video of all of these videos. Like it's going to be a, a video that has all the TikToks in it, all the Instagram videos, um, etc. So you can actually go and watch all of them there. I'm trying to download a lot of them before they get pulled off of TikTok because some of them already have. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, again, misinformation. So um, we're going to go ahead and get started with the same video that I started my last um episode with and ended it with as well, which is a lovely summary of where I stand. Okay, so this is a video. It's number 82 in the spreadsheet. It's from the TikTok account at Utica Masjid, which is another word for a mosque. So it's a mosque in Utica, New York. And this is a Muslim man sharing his thoughts. We're with the Palestinian resistance 100%. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no equivocations, no apologies, no condemnations. We don't need to go any further than that, right? Some people want to criticize the table manners of a starving person. You don't criticize the table manners of a starving person. You let them eat, right? You want to talk about, well, they shouldn't be doing things this way or they should be doing things that way. All right, get your boot off my neck and then walk. Right? And it's like this occupation has been going on for however many years. Stop the occupation and then we'll talk. Then we can talk about table manners. Then we can talk about this tactic and that tactic, right? But what happens is every single time is that we, we zoom in on the details and we forget about the bigger picture. And that's why we say Palestine has to be free first, period. And then we'll talk. Alrighty. Um, moving on to, well, that's a summary of where I stand on the, the issue. Um, and now we're going to move on to a um, the the previous episode that I did f- um, was a, lo- a collection of a lot of videos that was going over the historical context for Palestine, for Gaza, for Israel, and now we're going to get into some more stuff that's focusing more on uh, propaganda, um, specifically Zionist propaganda. And I want to be really fucking clear, and we're going to talk about this a lot. Zionism is not the same thing as Judaism. Zionism is not a religion. Zionism Zionism is a political ideology. Um, And we're going to get a lot more into that. There's going to be a lot more videos to talk about this, but I want to be really fucking clear about that from the get-go. This is uh, the video I'm about to play is number 18 in the spreadsheet. It's from an account at James Gets Political. We heard from him on the previous episode. Um, this is a fellow named James Ray who um, reports on leftist politics. And um, he is going to be breaking down a Zionist video. So you're going to hear him playing the, the video. You're going to hear, I think, oh, I think it's a woman's voice. Um, and then you're going to hear James's voice 
um, going over it and whatnot. So here you go. Does this sound like a racist trope to you? Israel, you have literally made the desert bloom. Of course not. Actually, yeah, it really is. For those of you who don't know, that is a video from the Zionist organization Honest Reporting. They pass themselves off as a sort of fact-checking organization, but the reality is that they are a front for Zionist propaganda and myth-making. Today we're going to dig into one of their videos so I can show you just how insidious Zionist propaganda really is. Let's dive in. Yet some media outlets are asserting this claim is racist against Arabs. Here are the facts. Believe it or not, Israel was not originally a desert. Once upon a time, its landscape resembled southern Greece. Israel became a desert due to thousands of years of colonization and mismanagement of the land, which made farming unreliable. So this making the desert bloom argument that we're really starting to see here starts with this foundational myth. The Israeli settler colonial project brought agriculture in abundance to an otherwise barren land. But this is, as I said, a myth and one that is completely detached from the reality of historic Palestine. People generally don't realize this, but Palestine is within a region of the world known as the Fertile Crescent. This region has historically been known for, amongst other things, its crops and agriculture. As such, it's no surprise that the Palestinian economy has pretty much always been heavily dependent on agricultural production. Rather than being a barren desert, Palestine is actually a region that, though it contains deserts, has plentiful amounts of water and what we'd consider relatively normal amounts of rainfall. In fact, you might be surprised to hear that if we look at the average rainfall in the area going back the last hundred years, that Ramallah has a higher annual average rainfall than Paris, and Jerusalem has a higher average annual rainfall than Berlin. And Palestinian farmers knew very well how to cultivate that fertile soil, spending generations cultivating the land and producing not only enough to feed their families and communities, but enough to begin trading with others. It's no surprise then that Palestine was producing large agricultural surpluses and was integrated into the world capitalist economy as an exporter of barley, sesame, olive oil, soap, and more during the 1856 to 1882 period and beyond. Given all of that, you might be saying, well then why lie about it? The answer to that's pretty easy. Framing Palestine pre-Zionist colonization as a barren wasteland allows Zionists to paint themselves as heroic figures who turn land into something productive and by extension good. Framing Palestinians as incompetent or barbaric, unable to fully harness the fruits of their own land, gave justification to Zionist settlers seeking to colonize the land and take it from them. As such, Zionists propagate the myth of making the desert bloom to give legitimacy to their project, in spite of the fact that, as we've seen, Palestine was already blooming. In the 19th century, Jews and the Zionist movement began the process of rehabilitating the land. So this is just blatantly untrue. Rather than rehabilitate the land, Zionists, through the displacement of Palestinians, came to acquire and occupy what was largely already existent rich farmland. This dispossession took many forms, from the purchasing of land from absentee landlords and the later forcing off of Palestinian peasants who were farming the land, to mass ethnic cleansing campaigns like those in the 1940s, which just within a couple of years led to the ethnic cleansing of 750,000 or more Palestinians from upwards of 520 cities, towns, and villages. In fact, the vast majority of cultivated agricultural land in so-called Israel today was already being cultivated by Palestinians before their ethnic cleansing. Estimates actually show that the scale of land cultivated by Palestinians was greater than the physical area which was under cultivation in Israel almost 30 years later. Now, is that to say there has been no new cultivated land since then? No, but the core of Israeli agriculture rests on stolen land of Palestinians that Zionist settlers ethnically cleansed. 
groundbreaking Israeli drip irrigation technology did, in fact, make the desert bloom. You can even see it for yourself when you drive through the Negev Desert. Bringing up the Negev Desert or the Nakab Desert is actually really funny to me, given the actual history of agriculture, specifically in that region. Zionists like to paint the Nakab as an area that they have made bloom, but the reality is that Palestinian Bedouins have long cultivated lands in the Nakab Desert using traditional farming and water preservation techniques. In fact, records indicate that the land cultivated in the Nakab by Palestinians in 1944 was three times that of cultivated land of all Zionist settlers in Palestine. The amount of cultivated land in the Nakab Desert has also dropped significantly since the ethnic cleansing campaigns of the 1940s, only further undermining the Zionist narrative. And the desert farms that Israel has created, rather than those traditionally cultivated by Palestinians, are economically nonsensical and ultimately unsustainable. Their real value rather lies in their discursive value. That is to say, their existence preserves the Israeli national ethos and by extension the foundational myth-making the colonial project is built on. And as some have noted, making a minor green spot in the desert is not a magical feat. All you need to do is waste huge quantities of water, which is something I'm going to dig into in a minute. Today, Israel produces 20% more water than it actually needs. Produces is a really interesting way of saying steals because Israel loves exploiting Palestinian aquifers. Palestinian environmental scholar Sharif S. Al-Musa describes Israel's water policy as being a sponge, and boy oh boy are they correct. Israel uses 73% of the West Bank's water, diverting an additional 10% to illegal settlements and selling to Palestinians the remaining 17%. It's also currently utilizing about 80% of the Palestinian groundwater resources in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Israel is also denying Palestinians access to the vast majority of the water from the Jordan River, despite only 3% of the river falling within their supposed pre-1967 borders. And their diversion of the water from the River Jordan, as well as Lake Tiberias, has caused problems all on its own. On top of this, Israel has also established a broad series of military orders and institutions that have created an apartheid system in regards to water in historic Palestine. Palestinians find themselves consistently curtailed from being able to access their own wells or build new ones due to elaborate permit systems that favor Israelis over Palestinians, who themselves are often unable to get approval from the Israeli authorities. It's no surprise, then, that Palestinians across the OPT consistently consume less water than their Israeli counterparts, often amounts well below the WHO-recommended daily minimum. It's also no surprise that Israeli companies like Mekarat have taken advantage of this crisis and have begun selling water to Palestinians at exorbitant rates, forcing families to spend upwards of half of their monthly income just on water. Israel's water acquisition, like its agricultural sector, is largely the result of decades of exploitation and plundering of Palestinians and their resources. And Israel is the only country in the world that entered the 21st century with more trees than it had at the turn of the 20th century pretty incredible. So this tree bit is actually incredibly insidious. Zionists like to highlight tree planting because it plays into the whole making the desert bloom rhetoric and seems like something that just has to be inherently positive. The issue is that those activities have been environmentally destructive with the manner of planting, use of chemicals, and repeated planting of non-native trees contributing to the killing off of native habitat and devastating forest fires. And the reason these trees are planted is incredibly dark as Zionist organizations like the JNF have frequently planted trees over the remains of ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages to hide their existence and thus erase proof of historic Palestinian ties to the land. And while they brag about planting trees, Israelis have decimated Palestinian olive trees that many Palestinian families rely on in an effort to further eliminate evidence of generational Palestinian ties to the land. In fact, just since 1967, more than 800,000 Palestinian olive trees have been illegally uprooted by Israel. The Zionists also drained the marshlands that were infested with malaria and sickened the local population. In fact, Arabs at the time admitted that the Zionists had made the land livable. 
Okay, so this is actually my favorite part of this. So they zoom in on a very particular part of this headline, but notice the full title. It reads, Arab Witness admits Jews took malaria and swamplands and made them livable, but says they gobble up the best lands on the coastal plain. Now, luckily for us, the Jewish Telegraph Agency archived this story from the Jewish Daily Bulletin, a story that was published on December 9th, 1929. In that article, there is mention of a single man that agreed to those claims, just one guy. But the rest of the article details complaints over Jewish settlers cultivating land that Palestinians were formerly cultivating. The article continues to note what became a common dynamic in historic Palestine of Zionist settlers forcing Palestinians off of the land they bought from these absentee landlords and refusing to employ Palestinian laborers. And the rest of the article are just allegations of settler violence against Palestinians. It's just a really wild article for a Zionist organization to cite that really does show just how sloppy Zionist propaganda really is. Between 60,000 and 100,000 Arabs immigrated to Palestine in the early 20th century due to new work opportunities. Really quick, just want to take note of the fact that they are bragging about the influx of Arab workers at a time in which Zionist settlers actually owned a very small portion of the land. And also glosses over the fact that many Zionists just flat out refused to even hire Arab workers. Just a weird thing for them to take credit for. So is Israel racist for stating historical facts? The answer is clearly no. Israeli environmental and agricultural advances benefit everyone in the state of Israel, no matter their religious or ethnic background. So yeah, this is clearly a bullshit video meant to paint an ahistorical picture of Zionist settler colonialism in historic Palestine, and one worth dissecting because the making the desert bloom trope is one of the more common Zionist talking points even today. That being said, it's critical to note that even if all of it were true, it would not justify Zionist settler colonialism, nor the displacement, suffering, and death that came with it. There's just no excuse for that, no matter how desperately Zionists wish there was. But yeah, so much for honest reporting, I guess. Uh, anyway, as always, free Palestine, and have a great day. Okay, so... Um, I do want to mention he has receipts, like screenshots of articles and statistics and data and various and sundry other things as he's talking. So if you want to go see the actual video itself, again, check out my whole YouTube video, which has this embedded in it, or um, go to the spreadsheet and um, God, uh, look at the, you can find the links to the TikTok there. Um, I also want to mention, I had a really rough therapy session this morning. I've been dissociating all fucking day. Um, I just space out and for I'm losing time. So if you hear me do that and I'm just, yeah, that's what's going on. So eloquent, I am not. All right, moving on to our next video here. So this is reference number 22. And this is from a, a Irani, Iranian American woman named Yagena, probably Yagena. Um, her TikTok handle is at little Yeg. And this is her talking about propaganda. Specifically, she's going to mention one of the earliest instances of misinformation um, shared by celebrities. Um, there was a Jamie Lee Curtis either Instagram post or Twitter post. I can't remember. You're going to hear about it in a second. And so she's going to dissect a little bit of that. Here we go. Please watch this video before you start spreading propaganda. All over Twitter, I see people posting this video of kids in cages saying, oh, you support this? This is what the Palestinian movement is doing. That video is from before even the situation started happening, and they're not Israeli children. How about this picture Jamie Lee Curtis posted? The literal photographer for the photo had to come and say, those are Palestinian children. Israeli propaganda is literally using brown kids' photos as if they're stock images to cosplay the victimhood that they've caused. 
Right. So there's a lot of a lot of posts that are circulating and when folks are wrong, they're not taking them down and correcting it. Um, so kind of the whole point of the videos that I'm sharing right here is like some media literacy to actually interrogate how we know what we know, where we're getting information from. And it's really fucking hard when it's um, there's there's so much. Like all of us are drinking from fire hoses anytime we're on social media, just in general. Um, but that's why it's it's vitally important to find reliable, trustworthy news sources and to find multiple sources of information instead of just the one. Okay, um, moving on to our next person. This is a person named Das. Uh, their TikTok is at Dassey978. This is reference number 47 in the spreadsheet. And they're going to be talking, they're responding to a, a TikTok comment that says, I still can't imagine fighting for my humanity by decapitating. And this is in reference to there was n even news reporting, even Biden acknowledged it. News reports that Hamas was decapitating Israeli babies. And so this is what Das has to say. Babies. Let's talk about the babies. Um, all today I've seen reports that 40 babies were decapitated. Um, that was, I saw that on CNN. I saw that on Sky News. I saw that on BBC. Um, all reporting that, that Hamas had decapitated 40, 40 children. And I want to discuss this because this is also tying into my message of we should be very careful on the media that we consume, the sources from which that media that we consume is obtaining their information, and how we're reading and articulating that information, especially during times of war and conflict. And I say that because all of these Western art uh, news outlets were saying that this is what was occurring, right? But you would go into all of the articles and they would be quoting from unspecific source be two, either from I-24 news correspondent Nicole Zedek. She has a live broadcast, like she's speaking, saying babies with their heads cut off. That's what the soldier said. Or from a Business Insider article. Bitch, I cannot provide these anymore, these sources anymore, because as of just like a few minutes ago, literally, I, I searched Hamas babies a few hours ago, and I saw all of these news articles claiming that 40 babies were de decapitated. All I can find is Fox News and NBC Montana article and some other small news outlets. This was big news on CNN, BBC, Sky News, Business Insider just a few hours ago. But you know what also I did see? A one to two, just like two other smaller, lesser known, lesser known to me, media outlets that had this reporting. Israeli ar army says it does not have confirmation about allegations that Hamas had beheaded babies. This was one of two articles I saw a few hours ago. Now, almost all of the news articles that come up uh, have just talks about a, a general attack, no more beheading babies. And this is why it's so important to be careful of the information that we're digesting during times of conflict and war and from who we're getting that information from. Because what is the most atrocious thing a person can do? 
kill children and beheading children at that, that's incredibly barbaric, right? When we start creating a narrative of what this one side looks like, there are people who behead children. We start constructing, these are horrible people. The Israeli defense minister called Palestinians human animals. These are human animals. We need to act accordingly. But what this is doing is giving Israel um permission the world is giving israel permission to hit back on palestine right it's um restricting access to food water um it's bomba bombarding them um i heard they're dropping white phosphorus there's videos of that and they're justifying their continued violent means by framing palestinians as these barbaric people notwithstanding that this article also talks about how 140 children in Palestine have died as a result of strikes. IDF had hit over 100, uh, 1,500 military targets. So again, we're playing into the oppressor's narratives and we don't even know it. Right. Um, so again, this is a video where she's posting as she's talking, you can see headlines and um, quotes from different news sites that she's getting her information from. Um, and I did want to mention in my previous episode, there was a, a recording of the Israeli defense minister, defense minister, not foreign minister, pretty sure it was defense, um, compare, calling Palestinians human animals. Um, and there's, I just lost my train of thought again. Um, yeah, media, media literacy really is what it comes down to, which takes time. I get that. It takes time. And the thought I keep having over and over and over again is, Fucking hell, I lost my train of thought again. Okay, it'll come back to me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move on to the next video and hope that it comes back. Okay, so this next one is reference number 69 in the spreadsheet. This is TikTok account at arguably Samaya. Samaya is Igbo American. Igbo is a part of South, is southeastern Nigeria. And um, she's going to be talking about misinformation and fake news, even stuff that's being reported by NBC. So here we go. Y'all, I really cannot handle this shit. Murderous Israeli settlers are depopulating entire Palestinian villages in the West Bank. And fucking NBC News is putting out another false start by the IDF to make Hamas seem like they were more murderous than they were. This document that the Israeli forces found, which many have pointed out, the Arabic is very stilted as if it was written by Google Translate, literally says to seize schools in Israel. But the attack was on a Saturday when people don't go to school. And also this paper, which was found on a dead Hamas member's corpse is miraculously in pristine condition. Really ask yourself, why do these people feel the need to lie? And why does our mainstream media amplify it? Yep. 
Okay. Um, and this was in response to a tweet that was an NBC, NBC News tweet showing a picture of this top secret like plan to, quote, kill as many people as possible. Um, and they're, they're, they're sharing this news as though it's fact without interrogating the, that fact and looking at the likelihood, like not the likelihood, the looking for confirmation, I guess is the word. Okay, so now we're going to go to um, reference number 54. This is TikTok at Sol underscore Iqbal. This is um, Sully, is the name of this man. He's Pakistani and Indian. And he's going to be talking about Israel's disinformation campaign. Israel's disinformation campaign is so deliberate. And it's so you either ignore the atrocities they are committing or so you just simply accept them. Right now... Israel have killed nine UN workers. That's a war crime. They've killed Red Cross workers. That's a war crime. They're bombing residential buildings. They're bombing buildings built by the UN, hospitals and schools. That's a war crime. They have told Gazans to go to the Egyptian border when Egypt have closed the border. And guess what? They're bombing the Gazans at that border. That's a war crime. They have cut off water, electricity, and food to Gaza. I know Keir Starmer says, that's A-OK, guys. It's not. It's a war crime. And he's a former human rights lawyer. Yeah, you know where his loyalties lie. Then we have them saying stuff like, yeah, 40 babies were butchered. But there's no evidence for that. The IDF themselves said, yeah, there's no evidence for that. And guess where that came from? An IDF soldier who just told something to some journalist, and guess what? All the media companies, all the media personalities are running with it. Piers Morgan, Andrew Neil, they're repeating this lie. And then Joe Biden says, yeah, I've seen the photos. And then the White House has to very quietly put out a statement saying, Joe Biden hasn't seen the photos. He's just been told there's photos, but he's not seen them. But guess what? No one, no one is going to look at that you know, little correction that they put out. They're going to look at Joe Biden saying, I've seen the photos. It's abhorrent. Apparently, Israel are running ads on YouTube now, uh, which are saying that, yeah, the 40 babies were butchered. That shouldn't be an ad that's running on YouTube at all. Apparently, it's on Made for Kids content, which is especially bad. That shouldn't be running on Made for Kids content, especially. Copper should really be hitting YouTube with a massive fine. I doubt that's going to happen. We're going to have to monitor that situation more. And the only real information that we're getting out is stuff coming from the UN about their workers being bombed by Israeli planes. But also the media programs are just saying airstrikes. They're not saying Israeli airstrikes. They're just saying airstrikes. We're seeing footage of Palestinian homes being destroyed by Israeli airstrikes. We're seeing footage of Palestinians being bombed on the border. But no, no, no. Don't watch that. That's not happening, guys. Apparently, we're seeing settlers being given guns in the West Bank, and they've started attacking Palestinians in the West Bank as well. But no, no, don't, don't, don't look at that, guys. Guys, don't look at that. And even it seems like Israel are telling parents, don't let your kids watch TikTok and stuff. Don't, don't, don't let them see that. And I wonder why, because you have people talking about this false narrative that's being put out by Israel to justify these attacks they're having on Gaza. And guess what? Egypt even told them that they're probably going to get attacked soon. And 
Israel keep playing this stuff as oh we had we had no idea we had no idea we just we've got to level Gaza to the ground. You don't have any politicians in the West talking about how Israel called Palestinians animals, how they're going to eradicate and level out um, Gaza because because it doesn't really suit them, and it's just an abhorrent abhorrent just smear campaign to try and justify the atrocities Israel are currently committing. Yeah, and I did want to mention that there are multiple reports of Israeli schools urging parents to tell kids to delete their Instagram and their TikTok. Um, the, Israeli, the Israeli schools are telling that to Israeli parents to address with Israeli children, which means that it's uh, uh, fuck. Words, Joy. Come on, you can do it. Um, it's it's like voluntary censorship. Um, and here we have um next. Okay. Um, this is reference number six from Instagram. Um, at Ahmed. I'm sorry. Ahmed Eldin, who is a journalist, um, and this is video of a 95-year-old Israeli army reservist, Ezra Yakin. Um, he's in uniform, and at the beginning of the video, he's talking to Israelis, and then you're going to hear the, the sound changes a little bit, and that's when he's in a car. Um, and this is just a recording of what he's saying, and it's all... Like, it's not in English, so there's a translation. And before I play the recording, I'm going to redo the translation. Be triumphant and finish them off, and don't leave any of them behind. Erase the memory of them. Erase them, their families, mothers, and children. These animals can no longer live. So that's him talking to multiple people. And then he goes inside of a car, and he's talking to whoever's in the car, and says... Nowadays, we have no excuse. Tomorrow, Hezbollah could send airstrikes on us and the Arabs could attack us, so we have no excuse. Every Jew with a weapon should go out and kill them. If you have an Arab neighbor, don't wait. Go to his home and shoot him. Attack them and don't wait for them to fire airstrikes at us and for the Iron Dome to activate. Attack them before that. We want to invade, not like before. We want to enter and destroy what's in front of us and destroy houses, then destroy the one after it. With all of our forces, complete destruction, enter and destroy. As you can see, we will witness things we've never dreamed of. Let them drop bombs on them and erase them. All of the prophecies sent by the prophets are about to occur. And this is him saying it himself. <laughs> אסור להם לחיות לחיות האלה. בימים האלה לא תהיה לנו ברירה. נקבל עוד טילים מהחיזבאללה ויקומו כל הערבים בארץ נגדנו, ואז לא תהיה ברירה מי יש לנו נשק ירע בהם. אתה יש לך שכן ערבי, אתה לא תחכה שהוא יבוא אליך הביתה. תיכנס אליו הביתה ותירה בו. תיכנס בהם לפני שיפעילו את הטילים שלהם. אל תחכה שיפגיעו ותיקח את כיפת הברזל. 
להיכנס לפני זה, אבל אנחנו צריכים להיכנס לא כמו קודם. להרוס ולהתקדם, להרוס ולהתקדם, עם תותחים, עם, עם הפצצות, להרוס בית ולהיכנס הלאה, להרוס עוד בית ולהיכנס. נקמה על מה שהם עוללים לנו, עכשיו הולכת להתחולל. עכשיו הולכים להיות דברים שלא חלמנו עליהם. שיפלו עליהם פצצות שישמידו אותם. כל מה שהנביאים ניבאו הולך על אחרית ימים מתרחש עכשיו. We're going to talk a little bit about apartheid. Um, this is uh, reference number 77 in the spreadsheet, TikTok at stars and the cosmos. Um, and this is um, starts with um, a person asking for a definition of apartheid, and then star is has stitched um, their response to that question. So here we go. Can somebody stitch this and explain what apartheid means? So apartheid does actually just mean segregation, but specifically when people talk about Israel being an apartheid state, the origin of that is the crime of apartheid, which is a different thing under international law. The crime of apartheid and the notion that racial segregation is bad in general is a relatively low concept. The UN only defined the crime of apartheid as a war crime in 1973, and the International Criminal Court, which prosecutes based on war crimes such as the crime of apartheid has only existed since 2002. So while the U.S. did absolutely commit the crime of apartheid, that crime did not actually exist during the Jim Crow era. And in the modern day, looking back, we can absolutely describe the U.S. during Jim Crow as an apartheid state. And I've seen a dissertation and I think two New York Times articles saying exactly this. I think it's just such a new term in our vocabulary that applying it to the U.S. is a relatively new thing. The reason it's applied a lot to Israel is specifically because of pro-Palestinian activists who describe Israel as an apartheid state and accuse Israel of committing the war crime of apartheid. And a little fun side point, the treaty declaring apartheid a war crime was actually voted against by the U.S. because, and they can phrase it however they want, but basically they didn't think that segregation was serious enough to be considered a war crime. Four states that voted against it were Portugal, the United Kingdom, the United States, and obviously South Africa. So there you go. Um, and now we're going to hear from Ali Valshi, who's an Indian-Canadian Muslim journalist. Um, he's going to be on, he's, this recording is him on MSNBC calling Palestine and apartheid. And this is reference number 40 from just some uh, random TikTok account um, that was recording the news. Um, this is at, at Braves 2021 ATL. So apparently a baseball fan. Anyway, here's the recording from MSNBC. Uh, let's make one thing clear. Israel has a right to exist and to defend itself. That is an indisputable fact. But so do Palestinians. And that's a fact that's often ignored. Palestinians are, at best, third-class citizens in the nation of their birth. The idea that it's even remotely controversial to call what Israel has imposed on Palestinians a form of apartheid is laughable. One look at a current map of Israel, Gaza, and the occupied territories conjures up only one other example, apartheid-era South Africa. 
The Israeli government, on an ongoing basis, declares parcels of land on which Palestinians live to be either of military or archaeological importance, causing residents to be evicted. Sometimes there's a court case, and almost always the Palestinians lose. Yet months or weeks later, that same important land suddenly becomes home to a brand new Israeli settlement. As more and more Jewish settlers take over land on which Arabs live, the occupied West Bank becomes de facto more Israeli and in the explicit hopes of the Israeli government, more Jewish. This is a long-standing attempt and a deliberate attempt to force Arabs who have lived in that land sometimes for hundreds of years out. It's an attempt to dilute their presence because to have Arabs as full participants is, in the opinion of the Israeli government and their courts, diluting Israel. Just prior to the pandemic, I toured many of the contested areas and homes from which Arabs are being pushed out, both in Israel proper and in the occupied territories. Palestinians don't control the important parts of their lives. Palestinian families are refused permits to build or renovate their homes. When they connect their homes to the municipal water supply, Israeli soldiers sometimes cut the pipes. When they attempt to harness solar energy because their homes are not on the grid, Israeli soldiers literally come and remove solar panels from their homes. I spent an hour and a half traveling alongside an elderly Palestinian woman who was being transferred between three ambulances from Gaza to the no man's land in between and then into Israel to get cancer treatment. Three ambulances over the course of one mile, more than an hour to cross the border. That's how Gazans live, without medical treatment because Israel prevents it, without electricity much of the time because Israel prevents it, without the ability to fish in the Mediterranean Ocean because Israel prevents it, without an airport or a seaport because Israel prevents it. Like Israelis, Palestinians also have a right to exist and to defend themselves, but there is no one willing to help them do that, not the Israeli courts, and not the U.S. government. What the U.S. also shares with Israel is the belief that Hamas, the political party that governs Gaza, is a terrorist organization that calls for the destruction of Israel. Hamas is supported by the majority of Palestinians in Gaza. Hamas may not be in the best long-term interests of the Gazans, but peace hasn't really worked out for them. Faced with an Israeli government which pens them into what has been called the world's largest open-air prison, they have chosen a government that most of us wouldn't prefer. One that is not given to negotiation and moderation and respect for its neighbor. Israel needs a new approach to the Palestinians. And America needs a new approach to Israel. After more than seven decades of not just being deprived of land from which they were evicted, Palestinian frustration runs deep. It may be worth going deeper than what you may hear inside your bubble and understanding the depth to which the Palestinian people are subject to apartheid in their own land, deprived of basic necessities and subject to relentless civil rights violations. This is not a secret. It's out there for you to see. You just have to look for it. And I also just wanted to say I don't have a lot of information on how Palestinians feel about Hamas or even how Hamas, like how they function at all. So I can't um, speak to that in any way, shape or form. And I actually don't have a lot of videos that speak to that either. So just fair warning, I guess. Um, now um, I'm going to read, this is reference number F or letter F in the spreadsheet. This is from the United Nations Human Rights Office of High Commissioner. Um, and this is from March 25th, 2022, so a year and a half ago. This is a press release 
that they put out entitled Israel's 55-Year Occupation of Palestinian Territory is Apartheid, UN Human Rights Expert. So I'm now quoting the article. There is today in the Palestinian territory occupied by Israel since 1967 a deeply discriminatory dual legal and political system that privileges the seven... Oh, sorry, my phone's ringing. And we're just going to leave that in. Okay. Let me start that over again. There is today in the Palestinian territory occupied by Israel since 1967 a deeply discriminatory dual legal and political system that privileges the 700,000 Israeli Jewish settlers living in the 300 illegal Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, said Michael Link, the UN Special Rapporteur for the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territory Occupied Since 1967. Living in the same geographic space but separated by walls, checkpoints, roads, and an entrenched military presence are more than 3 million Palestinians who are without rights, living under an oppressive rule of institutional discrimination, and without a path to a genuine Palestinian state that the world has long promised is their right. Another 2 million Palestinians live in Gaza, described regularly as an open-air prison, without adequate access to power, water, or health, with a collapsing economy, and with no ability to freely travel to the rest of Palestine or the outside world. And all of that was what the UN Special Reporter for the Situation of Human Rights in Palestine has said. The special rapporteur said that a political regime which so intentionally and clearly prioritizes fundamental political, legal, and social rights to one group over another within the same geographic unit on the basis of one's racial, national, ethnic identity satisfies the international legal definition of apartheid. So yeah, that's the United Nations Human Rights Office of High Commissioner press release from March 25th, 2022. Now we're going to go to, this is from AP News. This is um, reference number L um, on September 6, 2023. So just a month ago, a little over a month ago. The headline here is, a former Mossad chief says Israel is enforcing an apartheid system in the West Bank. And here's the quote from the, or here's, I'm now quoting the article. How about that? A former head of Israel's fuck. A former head of Israel's Mossad intelligence agency told the Associated Press on Wednesday that Israel is enforcing an apartheid system in the West Bank, joining a tiny but growing list of retired officials to endorse an idea that remains largely on the fringes of Israel discourse and international diplomacy. Tamir Pardo becomes the latest former senior official to have concluded that Israel's treatment of Palestine Palestinians in the West Bank amounts to apartheid, a reference to the system of racial racial separation in South Africa that ended in 1994. There is an apartheid state here, Tamir Pardo said in an interview. In a territory where two people are judged under two legal systems, that is an apartheid state. So that's his quote. And the article continues. Given Pardo's background, the comments carry special weight in security-obsessed Israel. Pardo, who was appointed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and served as head of Israel's clandestine spying agency, 
spy agency from 2011 to 2016 wouldn't say if he held the same beliefs while heading the Mossad, but he said that he believed among the country's most pressing issues was the Palestinians above Israel's nuclear program seen by Netanyahu as an existential threat. Okay, and now we're going to go over to um, CNN. This is a Mark Lamont Hill is talking to the Israeli foreign minister, Danny Ayalon. And um, Mark Lamont Hill has been fired from CNN because of this recording, this interview. So here we go. Oh, and this is reference number 72 from TikTok account at Suhail Judah. He said that the humanitarian situation, quote, will only deteriorate exponentially and that crucial life-saving supplies, including fuel, food, and water, must be allowed into Gaza. So the UN is saying you must do this. You are saying you're not going to do this. Um, how do you- No, we're not, we're not saying that. He's saying, do it, yeah, he's saying doing it immediately. What is what, you, what you're doing? No, no. He's saying doing it, doing, okay. doing it immediately. I- yeah, I got you. I'll tell you exactly what we're saying. I'm saying we will do everything for the Gazan people. Once and now, we demand immediate surrender, unconditional surrender of Hamas. If Hamas people come out with their hands up and clear their weapons, believe me, everything will be restored to Gaza. It is Hamas in Hamas hands. That, okay, if now I understand. Care- Thank you for clarifying that, sir. I, I think I think I think we're actually on the same page here. You're saying. That once Hamas leaves, you'll you'll grant the, the the Gazan people food, shelter, fuel, electricity, hospitals, schooling, and in, and if they don't, and, and if Hamas doesn't leave, then they'll continue to starve and die in hospitals. You are defining for the international community right now collective punishment. You're saying until until Hamas acts differently, the two million people in Gaza are going to be treated this way, and once Hamas acts differently, these two million people in Gaza will be treated better. That is exactly what collective punishment is. You're holding them accountable for the actions of others. That is the definition, the textbook definition of, of, of collective punishment, sir. Now, you may, you, you may accept that that's what you want to do, but this is absolutely a contravention of international law. Well, I'll tell you exactly. No. Had we, had no, if we, had we pushed them to the wall, we're not pushing them to the wall. We want to open a humanitarian corridor so they can leave. But if Hamas... So that who can Hamas, leave? So that who can leave? Citizens? You're saying civilians can leave, but only through the Rafah border, correct? At this point, yes. So they can't come. Where else? Your country. <laughs> they can come into Israel. I'm telling you one more thing. I want to say. Uh, no, no, but, but uh, I want say, you to. Uh, I want you to address that point. Don't just smile, sir. Respectfully, you're saying they. they you're, not, you're making a corridor. I'm, they can go. To, they can go to Egypt. You're bombing them. You say you want to save them, but you, they can't come in. I, first of all, I'm not smiling. I'm crying in my. heart. And that's where the, the video cuts off. Um, and yes, um, the the CNN um, reporter there, Mark Lamont Hill, um, was fired after that interview. Okay, um, moving on to reference number nine. This is from Instagram account at sbeih.jpg. Um, this is the... The man's name, he's a Palestinian man named Subi, and he's going to be talking about the current status of Gaza. 
We are now able to move on from calling Gaza an open-air prison and officially begin referring to it as an extermination camp, a death camp. Unironically, an act that was committed during the Holocaust. And when I say extermination camp, I don't mean that as an expression or as an exaggeration. At this point, it is literally, by definition, an extermination camp. A piece of land that is fenced off with another group outside of the fence exterminating the people inside. That's what's happening to Gaza right now. I think when we hear the phrase Gaza is under military blockade, for a lot of people, especially here in the West, that's such an abstract idea that they don't realize when you combine a military blockade with carpet bombing, we're literally talking about a genocide. No exaggeration or cynicism, an actual genocide in 2023. Gaza has been bombed by Israel countless times in the past decade. But this is a level of catastrophe that Gaza has never seen before. It has never been this bad. And these aren't my words. This is coming from people in Gaza right now. We're talking about 2 million people, half of which are children, stacked essentially on a sliver of land that is five miles wide and 25 miles long, locked off from the world by land, sea, and air. Israel is carpet bombing the small piece of land and the Palestinians aren't able to escape because Israel is blocking them in. They can't leave by land because Israel bombed the only exit point out of Gaza, destroying the crossing between Gaza and Egypt. They can't leave by sea because Israel has control over the waters and Palestinians aren't allowed to go beyond one mile from the shore and they can't leave by air because Israel destroyed their airport in the early 2000s and prevents them from utilizing the airspace above Gaza. So they're forced to just sit there in Gaza waiting for their inevitable death. Israel is literally flattening entire neighborhoods in Gaza, you guys. I mean like 20, 25 buildings within a given space flattened bombing these buildings so hard that there's literally nothing left but dust. We're not talking about buildings belonging to militant groups. We're talking about residential buildings, flats, apartments filled with Palestinian families. They're bombing and killing off entire families, cutting off an entire lineage. The kids, their parents, the siblings and families of their parents. I mean, the entire family name erased from this earth. They're bombing homes, schools, universities, hospitals, office buildings, buildings belonging to nonprofit organizations, mosques, churches. There is nothing that they will not bomb. And as if that's not enough, Israel has cut off their electricity, their water supply, and their food supply. Because there's no electricity, they're sitting there waiting to be killed in the dark. Everyone is staring at the battery percentage on their phones because they won't be able to charge it. The hospitals, one by one, are closing down because they don't have electricity to see their patients. So after a Palestinian gets bombed, if they survive, they don't even have a hospital to go to. There's sinks, toilets, showers, no running water. Israel cut it off. The streets are covered with so much rubble from the buildings that were bombed. Cars can't get through. The streets are full of rubble. The cars can't get through the town. Ambulances can't get around to help people who need them. People are spending days lifting concrete slabs to find the corpse of a family member. And as if that's not enough, Israel is blocking humanitarian aid from entering Gaza from Egypt, threatening Egypt, saying, if you send supplies and aid to the border, 
we are going to bomb your trucks. That is how severe the situation is right now in Gaza. They're bombing Gaza as a city back two centuries. There are areas that will never recover from the amount of damage that's being done, as in absolutely decimated, back to dust. And Israel brags and takes pride in the fact that before they bomb a residential building, knowingly, they know it's a residential building, they know these are just families, they boast that before the bombs hit, they call the residents and tell them, hey, we're about to bomb your building, get out now. Both the government and the people of Israel view that as a mercy on Palestinian people. As in, we are, we are blessing them with the opportunity to not get bombed. God forbid they don't have their phone on them at any given moment. They're having to keep their phones within arm's reach at all times, hoping to not get a call from the Israeli military and pray that their phone doesn't die because they don't have electricity to charge it. And just because they feel like it, now the military is not calling certain buildings and bombing it without warning. And other buildings calling them, but giving them less than 30 seconds to get to the bottom of the building and escape from the bombing. Rows of dead Palestinian bodies, lines of body bags filled with an entire Palestinian family. The parents, the kids, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles. They live in the same building, so they all died together and therefore all lined up together in body bags. And the world is doing nothing about this. The Arabic countries, <clears throat> Muslim countries, not a word. The West and Europe, actually encouraging that Israel go harder. The US deployed the largest warship in history to assist Israel. The US is sending in warplanes to assist Israel. And Israel has now communicated that there's going to be a ground invasion with over 300,000 Israeli militants. Fighting who? Hamas? A, a military group? One of the largest most well-funded, sophisticated military powers in the world, decimating an entire group of people who don't even have their own independent government, who don't even have a military. And somehow, Israel is the victim in this situation. And somehow, Israel is not asked to condemn acts. The world has failed Gaza, y'all. Two million people, one million children, sitting, waiting for their own death. Ya Rabbi, Ya Arham Rahimin, Ihmihin, Usabirhin, Lahin Surna, Ya Rabbi. Um, there was, while he was talking, he had posts of, from video and headlines and pictures of what's like photos and video of the bombings of body bags lined up like dozens upon dozens upon dozens of just row after row of body bags of whole families that are wiped out um yeah and speaking of the u.s response um yeah the united states is is on the wrong side of this one um and I want to share a video from a TikTok account, uh, the the Conscious Lee. Um, he's a black man and an NAACP Image Award nominee. Um, and this is reference number thirty. He's going to be talking about what Obama tweeted, and um, he starts off by reading what Obama said, and then 
talking about why language is important. So let's take a listen. I was hesitant to talk about the Israeli occupation of Palestine and what's going on there currently. But Obama, this tweet you made, it's not it. And I didn't stop and started and deleted and did this video so many times that I'm going to just do you a disclaimer. I acknowledge that this conversation requires a lot of complexity and compassion because a lot of us out West, including myself, has been educated through a lens that is very one-sided. You see what I'm saying? With that being said, we should always already have energy when innocent civilians are being slaughtered. The last disclaimer I want to make is words are important. And how we construct narratives with those words usually dictate who we care about, how we care about them, and who we don't give a damn about. Let's get into this tweet. Obama said, all Americans should be horrified and outraged by the brazen terrorist attack on Israel and the slaughter of innocent civilians. Innocent civilians. We'll get to that part back later on. We grieve for those who died, pray for the safe return of those who've been held hostage, and stand squarely alongside our ally, Israel, as it dismantles Hamas. As we support Israel's right to defend itself against terror, we must keep striving for a just and lasting peace for Israelis and Palestinians alike. Hmm. Let's start with unpackaging these two things from the tweet already. Being outraged by the slaughter of innocent civilians and having the right to defend yourself against terror. Yes, he ended the tweet. We're talking about Israeli and Palestinian everlasting peace, but he talked about Israel having the right to defend itself, but didn't talk about Palestine in that way. Remember, I said that words are important. They construct narratives and impact who we care about and how we care about them. Here we have a map. That's able to historically illustrate how Palestine, which is depicted in green, had territory in 1917. And as we move through history, that green becomes smaller and smaller. Now, I think, you see what I'm saying? The settler colonizing of your land means that you should have the ability to defend yourself from it. When you dig through the archive, you'll see that Palestinians have been going to the United Nations trying all type of ways to get their land back. Whether we're talking about doing peaceful rallies and protests or we talk about lawsuits or we're talking about trying to get legislation from the United Nations. We recognize that the ability for the Palestinians to defend themselves has not been one that has been acknowledged by the world. And speaking to acknowledging by the world, here's a map depicting the international response to the attacks on Israel. And I want you to acknowledge how much one color that you see compared to the other color. We see that the turquoise color is the condemnation slash support for Israel. We see the yellow which calls for de-escalation and we see that this little orange red color is support for Palestine. How much support for Palestine do you see in the map? Do you know that this depicts, this right here illustrates how we understand terror and terrorism when it comes to the Palestinian people? Islamophobia is defined as the dislike or prejudice against Islam or Muslims, especially as a political force. And when it comes to that word terrorism, when we start talking about anybody in proximity to the Muslim communities, populations, my ears, they start to perk up. You see me? My spidey sense start to tingling. Just like a black person in America, you start talking about criminals or thugs and relationship to me and people that look like me. I know something's up with it. This idea of terrorism, you see what I'm saying? Only being used in relationship to the Palestinian is very very suspect. I want y'all to think about that Cat Williams special. He was talking about how that word insurgent is used to kind of debik and bamboozle people. They pimps. They got us over there thinking we ain't really killing real people over there. They they don't never act like it's real people. They don't never say the day we kill six men and four women and three children. They use a word can't readily identify. 
Today we killed a group of insurgents. And brothers be at home like, I don't even know no insurgents. You kill all them. I don't have not one insurgent friend. Yes, yes, language is important. When I say it though, let's really get more context from this uh, communications expert. Take it away. And that is my area of expertise, which is communications. And I want to talk about two words. And those words are killed and the word death. And I want to talk about how language shapes narratives. When we talk about a conflict, an armed conflict, people make the assumption that both sides are equally as tooled and have the exact same resources. And not only that, but that the risks and the liabilities are the same. So when we see the word conflict, we make assumptions about power balances and not power imbalances. So when we have international news media, particularly news outlets in the West, characterizing the casualties from one group as from them being killed versus another group from them just dying dead, it always sends up a little flare in the back of my mind. Because this is the difference between active voice and passive voice. Israelis are being killed while Palestinians just die. Utilization of the word killed is an action word. It requires an actor versus somebody that is acted upon. Whereas the word dead is just a state of being. We're by and large not looking for perpetrators. We're by and large not looking for context. Death is just what happens, right? And I'm always worried when I see a political narrative being orchestrated to present one group of people for whom the consequences of being alive is merely death. Like, that's just what happens. Particularly when we already represent these groups of people as equally tooled and capable of violence. I want you all to pay attention to the words being used, okay? And be very careful with the words you are using. And never assume that history starts the moment you start paying attention. And I want to get serious with you for a second, and you know I enjoy my communications videos. But the swiftness with which America, Biden, and celebrities, and influencers all so quickly and so swiftly aligned in anti-Palestinian arguments and narratives from the bottom of my heart fucking terrifies me. And I know this is not new, but there's something different this time and i can't pinpoint my finger on it but it absolutely terrifies me and if you're asking yourself how does language impact how we understand life and who we care about here's the human cost from 2008 to 2023 here are the israeli deaths versus the palestinian deaths now we recognize that all death is bad but we acknowledge that these two sides is not equal that there's one side experiencing way more bloodshed than the other and this is where Obama's tweet comes back in. All Americans should be horrified and outraged against terrorist attacks on innocent civilians. This right here illustrates the airstrikes that's happened against innocent civilians that depicts how many Palestinians and how many Israelis has been taken out by airstrikes since 2008. We see the red is the Palestinian and the purple right here. You see what I'm saying? It's Israeli. We see the trend right here. But let's get back to these airstrikes. Obama had 10 times more airstrikes than President Bush. 
And according to 2018 reports, Obama launched 186 drone strikes to Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, predominantly Muslim spaces. Remember Islamophobia I was talking about? But uh, President Trump beat him out with 233 in his first three years. So when we talk about all Americans being outraged about the loss of innocent civilians, does that only apply to non-Muslims or you see what I'm saying? Now let's sprinkle some more context in there. Hamas was established in 1987. You see what I'm saying? So so the fact that we have so many individuals trying to structure the Israeli occupation and what Israel does to Palestinians as just mere resistance to Hamas, it's cap. You see what I'm saying? Not only is it deceptive, you feel me? It's a lie. And it's, I know when we hear about the Israeli occupation of Palestine, we tend to not hear from Palestinian voices. Well, we got something for that. Go on, take it away, bro. In light of recent events, here's a few things I think everybody should know about Palestine and what's going on right now. Number one, this is not a conflict. A conflict implies that these are two equal parties fighting for a legitimate claim. This is in fact colonialism, where one side has extensive funding and military power with a history of oppression, which is Israel, and the other side is literally fighting for their human rights. This is Palestine. Number two, Gaza for the past 20 years has been blockaded by the Israeli military by land and sea. Nothing can come in, nothing can come out, and all of the resources, including food, water, electricity, Everything has been controlled by the Israeli military. Not only that, but it's been bombed repeatedly over the past 20 years, causing tens of thousands of casualties, including women and children. And important infrastructure has been demolished, including schools and hospitals and much more. Number three, you're going to see this word used to describe Palestinian and the Palestinian struggle very often in the coming weeks. I want you guys to take that with a massive grain of salt and always remember that Malcolm X... Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela were all considered this word by the oppressive governments they fought against. You're going to take anything from this video. That word, by the way, he didn't say it, but it posted it above his head, is terrorist. Take this. Resisting your oppressors that have been oppressing you for 70 years is not terror. Denying people human rights, that's terror. And as always, free Palestine. Okay, um, so um, the Consciously, which is the account that posted that video, also took um, uh, videos. Um, the the first the the woman that you heard speak about communications and um, killed versus die um, language wise. That's at from the TikTok account at Crutches and Spice. And then the the man you heard at the end talking about terrorism and the definition of terrorism, um, who's considered a terrorist, um, is from the delightfully named uh, TikTok account at Arabic McLovin. Um, and again, there were graphs and charts and um, news headlines and video that was shared during that TikTok that you can't see because this is a podcast and you can't see anything. But if you go look at reference number 30 in my spreadsheet or the YouTube video, you can see all of the references um, that were being made. Okay, moving on. Hi, Crutches and Spice, speaking of which... Um, She's a TikTok creator. She's a disability rights advocate specializing in communications. And she's also black, um, a black American. And this is reference number 58. And she's 
talking about how words are constructed that change perceptions. Here we go. So if you saw my video talking about active voice versus passive voice and word choices, how they shape the media, then I have something to add that might make your brain melt. <laughs> it's not just word choices that shape media. It's also how the words are constructed themselves. Let me show you what I mean. Let's take the words racism and homophobic to demonstrate. The substance racism is ism. And the definition of ism is the act, practice, or process of doing something. This implies that racism is an act, practice, or process. Now let's do the word homophobia. The suffix phobia means irrational, abnormal, unwarranted, persistent, or disabling fear as a mental disorder. So racism is a practice while homophobia is merely a fear that cannot be controlled, implying that it is a natural reaction, unintentional and without a practice, like laws or policies put into place. Now, where else do we find those suffixes? So, in case you need a hint, think anti-Semitism versus Islamophobia. So, she's likening racism an ism is an act or a practice. Anti-Semitism is an act or a practice. Whereas in her example, homophobia is a fear that cannot be controlled. Comparing that to Islamophobia, a fear that cannot be controlled, a natural reaction. So even the way that words are constructed, they lend themselves to a certain um, perception. All right, next we're going to hear, this is reference number five from Instagram account Muhammad Elkard, who is a writer from Jerusalem, and he's also going to be talking about language. Here we go. Hi, let's do a quick media literacy lesson. Who controls the NHS? The UK. Who controls the French Department of Health, French government? You get the point. So let's ask ourselves a question. Why is it that when mainstream news networks are referring to hospitals or schools in the Gaza Strip, they will often say Hamas run? Regardless of what you may think of it, Hamas is the governing body in the Gaza Strip. And so logically, the Ministry of Health would be under its jurisdiction. Phrases like Hamas run and Hamas controlled are irrelevant but they are designed to feed on your bias. You then start to become apathetic to these patients that lie sick in those hospitals. You dehumanize them and you think of them as less worthy victims. Such phrases cast doubt on the data coming out of these institutions and they portray these institutions not as medical institutions run by healthcare professionals, but rather scary, untrustworthy institutions run by savages. When it comes to Israeli death, a journalist can just say X amount of Israelis have been confirmed killed. As for Palestinian death, the sentence will become the Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza says that X amount of Palestinians have died. This is one of the many ways totalitarianism operates within Western media to dehumanize Palestinians. But remember, a hospital is a hospital. Language is a minefield. It has significant influence on how we think and what we believe. But remember to be critical. You do not have to be complicit in genocide. And now we're going to hear more from the same Instagram account. This is reference number four in the spreadsheet. And again, this is Mohammed Elkard, 
who is a writer from Jerusalem, and he's going to be talking about media bias against Palestinians. Word of mouth testimonies from our colonizers are awarded front page headlines, breaking news, and mass hysteria. Meanwhile, video footage of our children being slaughtered, being bombarded, being pulled out of the rubble will never receive the same attention. Even footage of Israelis urinating and stomping on the dead bodies of Palestinians did not receive any of this media coverage. Western newspapers work overtime to elicit sympathy for settlers while painting Palestinians as terrorists. The Palestinians whose very lands these settlers have stolen and now live on. Journalists spread this misinformation, often willingly to decontextualize decades and decades of brutality and siege. Western newspapers will not tell you about the massacres committed by the Israeli military. Zionism is always justifiable in their eyes. Settlers can kill, kidnap, and steal, as well as institutionally monopolize violence as if it's business as usual. But dare a Palestinian resist? It's clear that the international community and the Western world has no problem with violence, only a problem with the perpetrators of that violence, who gets to monopolize, who has the authority to enact that violence. In addition to all of this, there is almost no international reporters on the ground in the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, the Palestinians in the besieged enclave have to deal with not only there not being any electricity because Israelis have targeted electricity, but being personally targeted by airstrikes. At the time of recording this video, seven Palestinian journalists have been murdered by Israeli airstrikes since the beginning of the onslaught on the Gaza Strip. This very erasure is part of the reason why Palestinians resist. Mass media is preemptively conditioning you to write a blank check for Israeli genocide. This is straight out of the playbook. They make up a lie. There is no evidence for it. Journalists spread it like wildfire. Diplomats and politicians repeat it. Then a narrative is made. The general public believes it. The harm is done. And they might, might later admit that it never happened. But you do not have to be complicit in this. You do not have to justify their genocide. They are readying to wipe Gaza off of the face of the earth. And the time to mobilize support for the Palestinian cause is now. Right. So, again, media literacy and, like, reading things, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, critically, like with a critical eye, is vitally important right now. I mean, it's always important, but especially when a genocide is happening. Okay, next we're going to hear um, from a TikTok account at Ali202. Um, this is, her name is Ali O'Brien. She's a white American woman and she's going to be talking about media bias. This is reference number 31. By now you've seen the footage on TikTok of Palestinian soldiers using bulldozers to break through the wall along the edge of the Gaza Strip and flying into Israeli settlements via paraglider. What you need to know to be a smart consumer of media right now is that the United States is a major political ally to Israel. So if you're American like me, the news coverage you're seeing of these events is very one-sided and lacking a lot of context. This is the Gaza Strip. It's about a 20-mile long section of Palestinian land is home to one of the largest humanitarian crises on the globe today. About 2 million Palestinians live cramped in this little section of land and the majority of them are refugees, meaning they were displaced from their original homes by 
the Israeli government are now forced to live in Gaza and are largely forbid from leaving. For this reason, human rights orgs call the area the world's largest open-air prison and conditions there are horrifying. 71% of adults in Gaza exhibit symptoms of depression. 1.3 million Palestinians require food assistance. The vast majority of water in Gaza is completely unsafe to drink. Gazan hospitals are out of nearly 50% of their essential medicines. But because it is so difficult to leave the Gazan Strip, even if you are on your deathbed, you still have to apply for permission from the Israeli government to leave to get healthcare elsewhere. As an example, in the first six months of 2022, Israeli authorities only approved 64% of patients' requests to exit Gaza in time for their appointments, meaning some people have literally died waiting for approval to leave for healthcare. Violence is already the norm for Palestinian refugees. There have been an average of three Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians every single day in 2023. In the past 48 hours, there have already been hundreds of lives lost, both Palestinians and Israelis, and that is always going to be devastating. This video is not meant to downplay the severity of death. Rather, this is a reminder that based on the biases of media, there's going to be violence that we hear about and violence that we don't. This isn't a conflict between two equal sides. This is the fourth largest military in the world versus the two million people that they've been holding in a prison for the past decades, the majority of whom are children and who have been stripped of food, water, electricity. Peace will never be achieved without acknowledgement of truth. So please be careful and consume your media wisely. And again, she had um, posts of reports and statistics and whatnot um, to uh, support the um, the conditions that she was um, describing in her TikTok. Okay. And next, we're going to hear from um, a Muslim woman. Um, her TikTok account is at No Science, um, where the Oh, no, that's wrong. It's no silence. Wow, I can't read. Okay, where the L is a one. Um, and then uh, that's reference number 62. And she's going to be talking about her experience of being constantly asked, do you condemn Hamas? You want to know what's so triggering about seeing all of these interviewers, all of these news anchors, all of these journalists um, spending three fourths of every interview with a Palestinian jabbing at them with the question, do you condemn them? Do you condemn the actions of Hamas? It's triggering because it forces me as a Muslim to replay all of the scariest and most frustrating moments of the past 20 years. When 9-11 happened, the Western media pounced on Muslims living in the West to get them to vocalize their condemnation of what happened during 9-11. Do you support terrorism? Do you support violence? Do you support radicals? Do you support this person? Do you support that person? And the sad part is, is we thought they were asking those questions in good faith. So when they asked those questions, we replied earnestly. We replied vehemently. Of course, we don't support murder. Of course, we don't support radicalism. Of course, we don't support people killing. But what happened after we clarified our stance, after we clearly emphasized that these are the actions of a few, was one of the most horrific massacres that we had seen in our lifetime. The millions in Iraq and Afghanistan, the rolling out of the Patriot Act in the U.S., the horrors of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, and all the while, these news outlets are turning back to us and are continuing to ask the question, you don't support terrorism, right? So you shouldn't have a problem with what we do to Iraq and Afghanistan. You don't have a problem with radicalism, right? So you shouldn't have a problem with the Patriot Act being enacted 
on Muslims across the country. The question, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn these violent acts? Is not a question in good faith. It is a power play. And it is a power play that is meant to uphold white supremacy. The Palestinians that they are interviewing are extremely important people. Ambassadors, journalists who have been on the ground, analysts, academics, all of whom have spent decades of their life, if not their entire life, living the Palestinian experience, learning about the Palestinian struggle, studying the history, living the culture. All of these people have the capacity, have the potential to give extremely valuable and enlightening information to the masses in order to get people to understand the situation and to recognize the humanity of the Palestinians. But these interviewers, these journalists, force these people to waste their time and waste their breath by constantly jabbing at them. Do you condemn? Do you condemn? Do you condemn? I can almost hear the television producer in the back room yelling into the anger's ear to get a condemnation out of the interviewee. If you are seeing this incessant, insulting, neurotic behavior, and you are genuinely believing that this is just a good person asking a good faith question, then you are simply too naive. You are too out of your depth to fully recognize the extensive weaponry that comes with white supremacy. White supremacy, in every circumstance of oppression, wants to maintain the illusion of righteousness. And these people understand that the illusion of righteousness is maintained so much better when people who look like me condemn those who are trying to fight for liberation. Do not fall for it. Yep. This is a prime example of why I'm saying very, very, very little in these episodes about Gaza, because um, there's a lot of people who say it a fuck ton better than I ever could. And who's also experienced lends them authority. Like, I can't tell you what it's like to be a Muslim woman. I can't tell you what it's like to be a, a Palestinian. Um, but uh, these folks certainly can. So... Alrighty. Um, next we are, um, this is reference number 76 from TikTok account at devotedly yours. This is, um, the woman who's speaking her account. Her name is Nahua and she is a, an educator about how to use social media. Um, and she's responding here in this video to an account that says, I feel, oh, sorry, not an account, a comment that says, I feel lied to and manipulated by everything I ever knew growing up. Growing up. The more I learn, the more disgusted I am. And this is Nahua's response. Realize you've been manipulated is a punch to the gut, but it also means you no longer take what certain people say at face value and you do your own research. Right now, there are a lot of lies and misinformation being spread on social media to try to justify what's happening to Palestinian civilians, and some of it even came from celebs. BBK News tried to put this on Twitter, and of course, it took off, saying that babies are being held in cages by Hamas, which is clearly a lie and misinformation purposely being spread because it was a screenshot taken 
taken from a TikTok that was posted four days before the music festival in Israel. There are people in almost every video commenting the same thing, that Palestinian civilians deserve what happened to them because Hamas has beheaded 40 babies. That information all started with this IDF soldier, which then spread like wildfire over social media to the point where Joe Biden literally in a press conference said, I never really thought that I would see have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. To the point where a US administration official had to clarify what Biden said, telling CNN that neither Biden nor his aides had seen pictures or had received confirmed reports of children or infants having been beheaded by Hamas. The official clarified that Biden was referring to public comments from media outlets and Israeli officials. And even though CNN reported that Israeli officials says government cannot confirm babies were beheaded in Hamas attack, it's already too late. And why is it too late? Because in the words of Mark Twain, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. If you still find yourself making excuses on why it's okay for Palestinian civilians to be slaughtered, why don't you take a listen to this young Israeli Jewish man whose brother was killed this past weekend. Six uh, siblings and um, not easy for us. Noah Katzman, May Himes, Memory be a blessing. I'm so sorry for your loss. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. So I want, what I wanted to say is the most important for me, and I think also for my brother, was that his death won't be used to kill innocent people. Um, and sadly, um, my government, our government, my government is using cynically the death of people to just kill. Like they promised us, it was going to bring. It's going to bring us. Um, like security, but of course it's not security because they always tell us, oh, that if we're going to kill enough Palestinians or they're going to, so it's going to be better for us. But of course it never brings us peace and it never brings us better lives. It just brings more and more terror and more and more uh, people killed like my brother. And I don't want anything to happen to people in Gaza like it happens to my brother. And I'm sure he wouldn't have any uh, either. So that's my call to my government to stop killing innocent people and that's not the way that brings us peace and uh, security to people in Israel. If you're thinking, well, why would we not believe an IDF soldier? This isn't the first time a lie like this has happened. Allow me to show you this video. It's there. I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators. incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. It was horrifying. I could not help but think of my nephew. Also turned out, Nayira was not just any Kuwaiti teenager. She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States, Saad Nasir al-Sabah. She had been coached by the public relations firm Hill & Knowlton, which was working for the Kuwaiti government. We're joined now by the journalist who first revealed Naira's identity, Rick MacArthur, the president and publisher of Harper's Magazine, the author of the book Second Front, Censorship and Propaganda in the 1991 Gulf War. Do you not find it strange that there's this running ad on children's videos on YouTube? It says, we know your child can't 
can't read this. We have an important message to share with you. 40 infants were murdered in Israel. This is Joy talking, reading this, by the Hamas terrorists, ISIS. Just as you would do everything for your child, we will do everything to protect ours. Now hug your baby and stand with us. This is a leaked video from 2001 of Prime Minister Netanyahu who talks about what he wants to do to the Palestinian people and how he basically has America wrapped around his fingers. Again, I can't play the video, but you can easily look it up. If you really think what happened this past weekend was a shock to Israeli officials, listen to this. There seems to have been a failure of intelligence as well. Uh, we're not quite sure how we missed it. We're not quite sure how Israel missed it. We know that it, it, Egypt had warned the Israelis three days prior that an event, event like this could happen. So ask yourself why, if they got this information prior to the attack, did they do absolutely nothing, nor did they try to protect the borders to make sure Hamas didn't get out. If you really think what's happening right now to Palestinians is because Netanyahu really cares about the civilians of Israel, think again. Again, they knew this attack was coming. They did nothing to stop it. And lastly, if you genuinely think Biden is supporting Israel because he also cares about their civilians, please take a look at this video from 1986. Time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. We're going to see that video more um, in the future, the one from Biden. Um, but again, uh, this TikTok account at devotedly yours, number 76 on the spreadsheet. If you look, watch her video, you'll see um, screenshots and screen grabs of the references that she's making, including what Netanyahu was saying about the United States. Okay. Now, um, the same account at devotedly yours from Nuha who is, again, a social media educator, like educates folks on how to use social media. Um, this is reference number 34, and she's going to be talking about um, influencers and activists. So the video starts with um, a picture, and there's two groups of people. The top group of people is Malcolm X, Malala, Nelson Mandela, Muhammad Ali, and Angela Davis. And the bottom group of people in another picture are, let's see, Sarah Paulson, somebody I don't know, a footballer, Kylie, nope, I don't know which Jenner this is, one of the Jenners, Kylie Jenner, yes, I think, um, Madonna and um, David Schwimmer, the actor from Friends, um, and so she's going to talk about these two different groups of people, yeah, here we go. Tomorrow marks a year and a half of me telling stories on this app, and I have officially hit a million followers. Thank you all so much for following my journey and listening to the stories I cover, and today is no different. Only this story is probably the most important one I'll ever cover. You were invited to sit down with a panel of very well-known faces where you got to interview them on activism and human rights, 
which group of these two would you pick? I think it's safe to say most of us would pick the top group. Do you know what the difference is between these groups? The top group are educated activists who have been speaking up for the injustice that's been happening to Palestinians for almost 80 years and fighting for peace and freedom of the Palestinian people. The bottom half, along with far too many celebrities to count at this point, just post stickers on their stories saying, I stand with Israel, I stand with colonizers, I stand with oppressors, without actually knowing anything thing that's going on. If they cared about basic human rights and all children, that would include Palestinian children as well. Case in point, Jamie Lee Curtis posted to her Instagram, children looking terrified, saying terror from the skies with an Israeli flag. She even went so far to tag the photographer, which goes to show she didn't even do her research because if you look at the very first sentence, it says Palestinian families seek refuge with their children from the Northern Gaza Strip. And instead of keeping her post up, but correcting the caption to say that these are Palestinian children, she deleted it, which goes to show that people literally don't care about what happens to Palestinians. Because for decades, Israeli military has been treating Palestinian children like this and this and like this. Do you know what happens? The world stays silent. And the Israeli military illegally killed a Palestinian American journalist the world stayed silent. Palestinians were carrying her casket, taking her to be buried. An Israeli military attacked them. The world stayed silent. Just one month ago, when Israeli forces fired tear gas on schools, on children, the world stayed silent. 12 months ago, Israeli soldiers fired tear gas on Palestinian children in school, little girls in school. The world was silent because Israeli Israelis have been demolishing Palestinian schools. This is how they go to school. Who's talking about it? In the past 12 years alone, there's a chart of Palestinian deaths and injuries versus Israelis. And guess what the world did? Stayed silent. 2.3 million Palestinians are trapped inside a tiny strip called Gaza with nowhere to go. They are not allowed to leave. No one bats an eye. Most of them are refugees and half of them are children. Where was the public outcry? And every year, just like clockwork, the Israeli military will attack innocent Muslims during the holiest month of our year in a place of worship and nobody talks about it. And Palestinian medics are being assaulted for no reason. Where is the public outcry? Israeli forces have been demolishing Palestinian homes in Jerusalem. Nobody talks about it. In fact, two years ago, when Israeli settlers were breaking into Palestinian homes, beating them, abusing them, kicking them out and taking over their land, you know what happened? Bella Hadid decided to not only speak up, but she also protested because she is half Palestinian. And when she posted about how her father's birthplace is Palestine, how he is Palestinian, her story was removed. Why? For bullying, harassment, graphic or sexual nudity. And while it didn't stop her from posting, Instagram started to shadow ban her. And while I would love nothing more than to see everybody living in peace and have equal human rights, it's very clear that Western media has another agenda. So it rubs me the wrong way when celebs say Israel has a right to defend themselves. That the Palestinians who have been trapped in this strip for years, who not only had their land stolen from them, but they have been beaten, kidnapped, killed, bombed. Apparently they don't have those same rights. Right. So again, this is um, words, joy. You can do it. Um, devotedly yours, reference number 34, devotedly yours on TikTok. Um, and she has receipts. So she's got screenshots and video and photos and headlines um, supporting the claims that she's making. 
Um, this next video is reference number eight. It's from the Instagram account at Gazan Girl. Um, the woman who's this, this is her account. Her name is Lara and she is a Palestinian podcaster. And this is from an Instagram live she did. The whole live is half an hour long. Um, I want to include all of it because it's amazing. But and by amazing, I mean like has a lot of really useful, very dense information. And it's also fucking tragic. Um, but I just wanted to share the first like <laughs> of a half an hour. I'm going to share the first um, three minutes or so. Um, and what she has to say. Here we go. Is Instagram actually going to tell my followers that I'm live? I don't know. We'll find out. What? Um, but the situation now is that we just got word that a Palestinian American boy of eight years old was stabbed to death in Plainfield, Illinois in a hate crime by his landlord who screamed with genocidal glee that you Muslims must die. CARE just published this on their website. And when I went to check the local news reports about this hate crime, they all omitted to say what the landlord shouted as he was stabbing the boy and his mother. They are reporting it as just some random act of violence. So the boy has been killed and his mother, Hanan, is in critical condition right now in Plainfield, Illinois. Some reports have him as six years old. Some reports have him as eight years old, regardless. I need everyone to understand that the blood of this boy and his mother are on the hands of CNN, BBC, Fox News, and every single major media conglomerate worldwide, in addition to the United States government, the European Union, and the international community, who for the last week have allowed the Zionists to go on to their platforms and to say things like there are no civilians in Gaza and to have statements like this, deep, deep criminal intent to commit genocide against an entire people go unchecked without the slightest bit of pushback. U.S. politicians who said things parroted the talking points of the Zionist regime and said things like flatten them all. They're savages. They're human animals. That's what, that's what their leaders said in Israel. They're human animals. Their so-called defense minister, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, DeSantis, all of these American politicians who have contributed to the dehumanization of Palestinians to the point that a Palestinian American boy in a suburb of Chicago has been stabbed to death. Do you, do you understand the scope of the genocidal glee that has been drummed up in a matter of a week to get us here? Do you understand how we got here? It took one week for the world to be thrilled, to be, to be perfectly content with the, the extermination of the Palestinian people, be they in, in Gaza or elsewhere. We are not 
living something normal right now. Okay. Um, piggybacking off of that, um, we're now going to go to Lena Abujarada, who is a Palestinian artist and activist. Um, her TikTok account is at Lena Abujarada. Um, this is reference number 24. And she's going to be talking about um, how we define violence. And it's, I, I want to be clear, like, <laughs> This the, a podcast is not the the medium through which to communicate a lot of this shit because it's visual. I'm sharing TikTok videos on a podcast, which is a bonkers idea, but this is the platform that I have, so I'm using it. Um, she's going to share a huge number of I don't actually know how many. She's going to share corroborating headlines. Whenever she says the thing, she will share headlines about what she's sharing. You won't be able to see that unless you go and watch this video. Um, or go to her TikTok, but I just want to be super, super clear that she's not just making random claims. There's corroboration that she's providing. So here we go. So as Palestinians, do you support violence? This question is completely unfair because it's never posed to the state of Israel. So let me ask you this. Is a woman having to give birth in front of Israeli soldiers at a checkpoint not violence? Is Gaza being an open-air prison, is that not violence? When Palestinians are shot fatally simply for attending a protest, is that not violence? When a child shrivels away and loses his childhood behind bars, is that not violence? When a journalist is targeted by a sniper for simply daring to speak the truth about Palestine, is that not violence? When a writer or artist is imprisoned under administrative detention in Israeli jails, tortured, harassed, is that not violence? Sometimes violence doesn't mean that there's blood. Violence is an entire system. Colonialism is the most repressive form of violence that affects Palestinians every single day. From the moment they wake up to the moment they sleep, they are feeling this violence around their necks. How does the West not see the violence that Palestinians are continuously under? And how do they vilify Palestinians for practicing their legal right to resist that violence? They expect Palestinians to use nonviolence as a deterrent to a colonist that is continuously violent. Colonialism in itself is an inherently violent process, and the West is funding that process. So the next time someone tries to vilify you by making you out to be like the person who supports violence, tell them, I support the right of every human to resist their colonizer and occupier. As people who believe in every human being's right to dignity, safety, and basic human rights, yes, we support Palestinians' right to armed resistance, nonviolent resistance, in order to get to a free Palestine. Alrighty, um, next we're going to hear from, um, this is an uh 
It's from the TikTok account DV DD. I can't speak. DD's TV three. Um, this is a reference number twenty seven. It's an interview with the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hussam Z- Zomlat, um, between him and Kathy Newman, who is the the newsreader on Channel Four News. And this is what how that conversation went. You heard there about the the people missing, the hostages taken, the mothers, the elderly women, children taken hostage. Will you condemn this atrocity by Hamas? Kathy, I have had this question as a first question in every interview I did. And I refuse to answer that question because it is the reason why we as an international community have failed to depict the situation as it is. The business of always being obsessed with blaming the victim, the occupied, the colonized, the besieged, when in fact I didn't see you asking her to, to, to condemn. I didn't see you. But I, I did I not hear your first no, question to I, I, condemn the killing of an entire family that your reporter no, I, just... No, I, I, uh, I, I, I tackled her, her on the people who are losing so their lives in Gaza. And I'm asking you cannot, about the people who have lost Kathy, their lives, Kathy, the Israelis who have lost their lives. It's tragic. It's tragic. Uh, and, and you uh, condemn that atrocity. It's tragic. Atrocity. And this has to stop. And this approach by the international Western media has to stop also. There is no way we can draw symmetry. The one side that is responsible fully on this is the occupying power. You cannot draw symmetry between militant groups and what you call here in the West the only democracy in okay. the Middle East. But this was an you, unprovoked you, attack. You, there were you, people, you cannot, there were people cannot, at a peace festival, can, at a music festival. Could be hundreds uh, dead there, young people. They had no quarrel in this. They had no skin in this game. Why did they have to die? Kathy, my task here is to represent my people. This isn't about Hamas. This isn't about the last 48 hours of what the Israelis have seen. My people have been seeing the same over a period of 75 years. This is about a Palestinian people, more than 13 million of us, that have been denied our very basic rights for almost a century. But I'm asking you, as a human being, would you urge Hamas to release those hostages? As As a human uh, being? As a human being, I urge that people's legitimate rights are respected. And that includes the hostages, because after all, taking hostages is illegal in international uh, law. I, I, I wish safety to everybody. But do you know, Cathy, that Israel has taken two million people in Gaza hostages mm. for the last 16 years. And you heard you know, me asking the, you know, the deputy you know, mayor that you know, very you, question. You know, and I haven't heard any in the, in the Western media or the international politicians, really the outcry uh, uh, about that. So it's practically, ironically, it's hostages taking hostages. Well, I did, ta- I did uh, tackle the, the lady in Jerusalem over that very point. But look, The attack by Hamas has now prompted this mighty vengeance, as Israel is calling it. The people of Gaza are the ones who are going to suffer. Your people are going to suffer. So how do you bring this bloodshed to an end? How do you play your part in that? By giving my family in Gaza, because they are in Gaza, hope, horizon. Where is the hope? Prospect. That's the question the Israelis need to ask themselves. I'm asking you that question No, that's not for me. Our people have been struggling for 100 years. Our people... look. You know what is so tragic as well is the supremacist thinking in Israel that they could 
go and wreak havoc everywhere. They could attack Palestinians, kill them, round them without charge or trial. They could steal our land. They could desecrate our holy places. They could besiege people for years. And then they ask why this is happening. But there's you know, the same, this is there's the, the same epitome attitude. of racism. But there's the this same is, attitude by Hamas, right? This, 700 Israelis have lost their lives. This is the lives. epitome of, of racism. If we really want to nail it down, this is a moment that serves as an alarm, a wake-up call for all of us. There is no way around the Palestinian people and our issue. There is no way but to end this occupation. There is no other route but to enforce international law and international legitimacy. Okay, but how does your party, Fatah, bring some pressure on Hamas? Do you talk to Hamas, for example? My party has been the party that has led the Palestine national movement. Mm -hmm. My party started the armed resistance long before Hamas. And then we gave up that and we committed to three things, recognizing Israel, uh, uh, committing to negotiations and nonviolence and committing to international law and resolutions. Are you talking Is, to Hamas now? Are you so urging restraint? That was, that was 30 years ago. We did that. Okay, Israel but not now? You, you no, have no we, we still, we leverage. Still, Israel was expected to do one thing. End its occupation, stop its colonization. Right. You know what happened. So okay. you come Ambassador, <laughs> Ambassador, I'm so sorry, we're out of time. Ambassador Zomlot, thank you very much for joining us. And on tomorrow's programme, we'll be speaking to Israel's ambassador to the UK. So I, you just heard it, so you know, but um, I did want to point out, like, because the entire conversation, she kept going back to, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas over and over again? He he couldn't make his point um, and talk about the fact that Israel is taken 2 million people hostages for the last 17, 16, 17 years in Gaza Okay. Um, yeah. Again, I just lost my train of thought. All right. Um, there's. I have a lot more to share. I thought this was going to be a three-part series. It's probably going to be four at this rate. Um, but I did want to share. Um, again. I will, there will be action items. I have links in the description of action items, things that people can do, um, action you can take to support the Palestinians, um, in Israel and really throughout the world. But, um, a couple things, um, fuck my brain. Okay. Um, contact your news outlets. Uh, contact your elected officials and uh, the news outlets like fucking inundate the news outlets with the the feedback that their coverage is enabling genocide the way they're portraying Palestinians the way they're they're um, upholding um, Zionist Israelis um, the Israeli government specifically I mean um, is, is facilitating a genocide. Um, and there's a lot more to do, but those are the two things I can think of right this second. And I will put links to more in the description. Um, I'm going to end with the same video that I started with because it's, again, a beautiful summary of my my stance on this. Um, this is reference number 82 from the TikTok account at Utica Masjid. Um, 
And this is a Muslim man from New York sharing his thoughts. We're with the Palestinian resistance 100%. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no equivocations, no apologies, no condemnations. We don't need to go any further than that. Right? Some people want to criticize the table manners of a starving person. You don't criticize the table manners of a starving person. You let them eat, right? You want to talk about, well, they shouldn't be doing things this way or they should be doing things that way. All right, get your boot off my neck and then walk. Right? It's like this occupation has been going on for however many years. Stop the occupation and then we'll talk. Then we can talk about table manners. Then we can talk about this tactic and that tactic, right? But what happens is every single time is that we, we zoom in on the details and we forget about the bigger picture. And that's why we say Palestine has to be free first, period. And then we'll talk. All right, so that sums that sums things up. Um, keep your eye out for the next post that I'm going to drop um, on this series. I'm going to keep talking about it for a while because um, I think it's vitally important. And um, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of therapy skills to be applied here, uh, which is this is. I understand that this is the platform, like I, this is my podcast about therapy skills, uh, and I feel the need to tie it in. But really, if I'm going to tie it in at all, I want to do it in the following way: that this is an ult, the ultimate both and here. Two things can be true at the same time, and we have to be able to hold. I I have to be able to hold two things to be true at the same time. The, and the inability to do that, the inability to hold that Israel can be a response to anti-Semitism, like the creation of Israel can be a response to anti-Semitism, and at the same time also be perpetrating, the government of Israel can also be perpetrating a genocide. That's hard to hold at the same time. And it is vitally important that we do that. It's vitally important that I do that and that I keep talking about this because like the alternative is is turning away. Um, yeah, so I have more to say, or rather I have more videos of other people sharing things um, and that'll be in the next episode. So I'm just going to go ahead and do my thing and end this super abruptly. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro intro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.